It was spring of 1939 in Manhattan, a crowded, bustling borough in the heart of New York City. Slushy snow remained on the streets from the retreating winter, while taxis and crowds of people moved about their business for the day. Vendors selling roasted chestnuts offered a tasty snack to bystanders and pedestrians. Far above the city's din, the great scientist, Enrico Fermi, sat by a panoramic window in his office at Columbia University. He and his family had recently fled for their lives from their home country of Italy, which had fallen under the power of the fascist dictator Benito Mussolini. Dr. Fermi's family had just been granted asylum in the United States. Now Dr. Fermi sat with his new American colleagues, discussing a discovery that had taken the international scientific community by storm. Only a few weeks earlier, German and Austrian scientists had published research that demonstrated the process of nuclear fission. They had shown conclusively that a uranium atom was capable of splitting in half and in the process of doing so would release a tremendous amount of energy. Normally a light and witty fellow, now Dr. Fermi became sober and serious as he cupped his hands together as if he were holding an orange. A little bomb like that, he said turning to gesture with a broad sweep of his hand toward the skyscrapers and people outside, and this would all disappear. E is equal mc squared showed that very small amount of mass may be converted into a very large amount of energy. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. Let me tell you about my grandfather. Carl Frank Vatopka, my grandpa, was born into a farming family in western Kansas in the relative prosperity of the 1920s. His dad, my great-grandpa Frank, ran a productive farm and ranching operation in spite of a disability that prevented him from walking normally. Frank had been kicked in his leg by a horse when he was only three years old. Thankfully, the boy was nursed back to health by the folk medicine of an old traveling gypsy woman. Frank and Carl descended from a family of brave pioneers who had carved their existence out of the frozen American prairies. Like everyone born in those days, my grandpa Carl was only a child when the United States descended into the worst period of economic difficulty that the country had seen in 50 years, the Great Depression. Thankfully, the family could sustain itself during the years of want through hard work on the farm. After enduring the Depression for a decade, the Second World War touched the North American continent after the Japanese attacked Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941. My Grandpa Carl was just a young man having started his first year of college. Grandpa Carl joined the Navy in the spring of 1942, interrupting his college to which he would never return. His family sent three sons to war. Fortunately, all came back safely, and only one came back with a purple heart. 
Many of the sons sent by my grandpa's farming community didn't return. They fought and prevailed on the beaches, oceans, and hinterlands of that great war. Carl spent the next four years of the war on a series of destroyer-class warships in the South Pacific Ocean, fighting back against the Japanese forces there. This young, confident, and independent farm boy chafed under the discipline of military order. Long years spent at sea were hard for the man, used to spending solitary hours on the peaceful prairie tending the needs of his family's farm. The dangers of war were ever-present from Japanese submarines and kamikaze airplane attacks. His ship assignments saw many major battles, including the Battle of the Philippine Sea, referred to famously as the Great Marianas Turkey Shoot, where great waves of Japanese kamikaze dive bombers were repelled in their attack. He also saw the South Pacific War's defining moment in the Battle of Iwo Jima and at the harrowing battle for Okinawa. Trained as an engineer, Carl spent much of his duty hours below deck in a hot, oily engine room. In the waning weeks of the war, his ship would make a reconnaissance dash up the Yangtze River at maximum speed in Japanese-occupied China. In October 1945, the ship docked in Nagasaki, Japan, to pick up recently freed American prisoners of war. Some crew members left the ship to visit the very site of the atomic bomb attack two months earlier. Although Carl did not get off the ship, he remembered others' descriptions of the damage and smells of that devastation. After the war, he returned to Kansas and resumed his interrupted life. He married my grandma, Betty, and they raised a family together. For enduring the Great Depression, fighting and winning the Second World War, and for leading this nation and world in the long peace that followed, it is no wonder that he and the others of his time are called the greatest generation. He passed away when I was a junior in high school. He was buried at Fort Rosecrans National Cemetery in Point Loma, San Diego with full military honors. His wife, Betty, joined him earlier this year. I dedicate this program to the memory of my grandpa and to the rest of our ancestors who fought and died in that great war. We are the descendants of heroes, and whatever they had within them to prevail against hardship and evil, I believe we carry within ourselves as well. There's something about the Manhattan Project that utterly fascinates me. Probably many things. For some reason, the individual stories of the scientists, the epic unfolding story of a world war, and the culminating release of such unimaginable power and energy, securing a final allied victory in an epic struggle of good versus evil, return again and again to my mind. Our story begins in 1933 at a crosswalk in the city of London. A young scientist, Leo Zillard, was waiting for the semaphore to give him permission to cross the street. Zillard was a Hungarian Jew, and like so many other Eastern European Jews, he had seen the ominous rise of Nazi and fascist ideology and had taken the steps to leave continental Europe while he still could. Now safe in the United Kingdom, the highly creative and absent-minded scientist, as he often did, was dreaming up ideas. Ideas for experiments, ideas for inventions, ideas for theories. That day, his mind was occupied with a new discovery that had lit up the world's scientific community with a buzz of excitement. British scientists had discovered the existence of the neutron. Now, if you've ever taken a chemistry class, think back to what you learned about the various parts of the atom. 
Maybe you remember that the atom has a small but heavy nucleus at its center, with little electrons that whir and spin all around it. You may remember that inside the nucleus, there exist protons, whose positive charge attracts the negative electrons, preventing them from wandering too far away from the atom. The nucleus also contains neutrons, which have no charge. The purpose of the neutrons within the nucleus is to spread out those positive protons ever so slightly in order to keep the atom's nucleus more stable. British scientists had just found a way to kick one of these neutrons free of the nucleus, and by using sensitive instruments, were able to observe it. Zillard was standing there on the street corner thinking about these results, and then all at once he was hit by an epiphany. The idea to use these neutrons to start a nuclear chain reaction. Here's how it would work. Imagine a neutron flying towards the atom like a cue ball at a tight rack of billiard balls. Now it's important to understand that the neutron is neither positive, so that the positive nucleus doesn't repel it, nor is it negative, so it doesn't get trapped in orbit like an electron. Because it is neither positive nor negative, the neutron flies right past the electrons, undeterred by the protons, and hits the nucleus with full impact. Then if circumstances were just right, and if it were the right sort of nucleus, then the process wouldn't stop there. Maybe the collision of this one neutron would kick loose two or three more neutrons from that nucleus. And now these newly freed neutrons could fly off and collide with other nuclei themselves. And each of those would kick off more neutrons, which would collide with more nuclei, releasing more neutrons again and again and on and on. You get the idea. Such a nuclear chain reaction would release tremendous amounts of neutrons, and maybe, Zillard thought, the reaction would release energy. At that moment, Zillard woke out of his vision and realized that it was safe to cross the street. He cataloged the idea away in his memory, along with the thousands of other ideas he had stored away. Thus, he stepped across the street and into the pages of history. Sometimes moments of genius are quiet, uncelebrated musings of a great mind. Let's back up a little further in time to gain some perspective. It may seem obvious to us now, but scientists didn't always know that matter, the stuff in us and all around us, was made of atoms. How could it be any different, you might ask? Here's what we know. If you take a piece of metal, like a block of iron, we know you can cut it in half. And now imagine taking one of those halves and cutting it in half, making a quarter. Then take one of those quarters and cut it in half. And you keep doing the same thing with ever smaller and smaller pieces. And assuming you had this ability, you could cut and cut until all you had left was a single atom of iron. Then, if you cut that matter in half again, it would no longer be iron, but two atoms of something else. Not long before the year 1900, most scientists thought that matter was continuous. They thought you could divide a block of iron again and again forever, and the pieces left over would never stop being iron. It wasn't until elegant experiments and theories were devised in the late 1800s and early 1900s that scientists finally became convinced of the existence of atoms. At that time, conventional thought was that these atoms were solid, indivisible, and indestructible. 
Here's a quote to that effect by the famous scientist James Clerk Maxwell. Though in the course of ages catastrophes have occurred and may yet occur in the heavens, though ancient systems may be dissolved and new systems evolved out of their ruins, the atoms out of which the universe are built, the foundation stones of the material universe remain unbroken and unworn. They continue to this day as they were created, perfect in number and measure and weight. That is, until the start of the 20th century, when J.J. Thompson cracked open the atom and pulled out a piece. The piece he found was the electron, the low-mass, negatively charged particle that orbits the nucleus. News of the electron's discovery spread all across the world, even reaching as far as Ernest Rutherford, the son of potato farmers in New Zealand. Young Ernest Rutherford had been born only a few short decades after the first white settlers arrived in New Zealand. As part of the British Empire, New Zealand was not established as a prison colony like Australia, but a religious colony, a frontier settled primarily by missionaries. Unlike Australia, which has a hostile environment full of poisonous plants, giant spiders, sea snakes, and barren deserts, New Zealand is a heavenly country with mountains, forests, and glaciers and was inhabited by a diverse plethora of beautiful, colorful birds. Rutherford performed well at school and excelled in his science classes, so much so that he was encouraged to apply for a scholarship to travel to Britain and study at the Great Cambridge University, where Thompson had just discovered the electron. For months, Rutherford waited for news from his application to Cambridge University. The story goes that the letter arrived while Rutherford was out in the potato field digging up the new harvest. When his mother came out to tell him the news, the legend goes that he threw down his potato shovel and proclaimed, I'm never digging another potato again for as long as I live. Leaving behind his family and his new fiancée, Mary Newton, in New Zealand, Rutherford made the long journey to Britain by ship. Upon arrival, he joined Thompson's lab who set him to work initially not on atoms, but on the relatively new technology of radio. Being the child of poor farmers, Rutherford was painfully aware of his low social class compared with the pedigrees of his fellow students and colleagues. Next to the well-bred, connected children of aristocrats studying at his side, Rutherford knew that he was not only a peasant in their eyes, but worse, a colonist. He felt their disdain palpably especially when he consistently outperformed them in his scientific skill and knowledge. Thompson, ever the encouraging professor, told Rutherford not to pay any attention to these jealous and pompous snobs. Rutherford took these words to heart, fought back the loneliness and homesickness, and applied himself diligently to his work designing better radios. He missed Mary and felt that he could not marry her until he had attained enough money to provide for her. He also felt that by obtaining money and scientific accomplishments, he could earn esteem in the eyes of his peers. He chased the hope that his inventions with the radio could be patented and sold for enough money to bring Mary with him to England, and maybe even enough to earn him great wealth and status. His repeated inventions and scientific success did not earn him respect from his peers and competitors. On the contrary, their jealousy of his excellence only intensified their contempt, and they began gossiping behind his back, deriding him as nothing more than a money-grubbing farmhand. 
Thompson caught wind of Rutherford's intentions to make money from his radio inventions, as well as the damaging gossip. And while Thompson understood his young charge's desire for a comfortable life and the respect of his colleagues, Thompson felt the need to intervene on the young man's ambitions. For scientists in those days had, perhaps, a different perspective than most do nowadays. Scientists like Thompson saw their study and research as a holy endeavor, whose purity was not to be soiled by worldly concerns and money. And so one day, Thompson pulled Rutherford gently aside into one of the cathedral-like halls of Cambridge and explained all of this to him, that theirs was a solemn pursuit, and that it was to God's glory to conceal a matter and their glory to uncover it. Quoting scripture, Thompson told him, you cannot serve both God and money. From that day, Rutherford was a changed man. He abandoned his pursuits of lucrative patents and inventions with radio, and Thompson switched his project to the study of the atom to see what other secrets may be hidden inside. Though it took some more time, Rutherford was soon able to bring Mary over from New Zealand. And in the years that followed, his hard work and dedication earned him a place among history's great scientists. And in so doing, did Rutherford give his worldly concerns and ambitions to God. And God gave Rutherford the atomic nucleus. After discovering the electron in 1904, Thompson and his colleagues struggled to form a picture of the atom. If the atom did have negatively charged electrons within it, then those electrons must not be moving, they thought. This was because of the well-known theories of Maxwell, which predicted that any moving charged objects, unless they were traveling in a straight line at constant speed, would slowly lose energy and come to a complete stop. Therefore, Thompson formulated his plum pudding model of the atom. Plum pudding is a popular dessert in England and is actually like a loaf of bread, not pudding, and confusingly contains raisins, not plums. He thought that if the electrons were like raisins, then there must be a dispersed positive charge all around them, like the bread itself, and that the raisins would be sitting still, embedded in this dough of positive charge. Again, the electrons couldn't be moving, he thought or else they would radiate away their energy and come to a stop. Or would they? Years later, in 1911, Rutherford would be experimenting with alpha radiation, a mysterious force at the time, now known to be the stripped-down nuclei of helium atoms moving at high speeds. Rutherford wondered how an alpha particle interacted with an atom, and whether an atom could interact with an alpha particle and affect its pathway. To answer this question, Rutherford had his students set up the following experiment. He was a professor by this time. They placed a source of alpha particles pointing towards a thin sheet of gold foil and placed photographic film, which could detect alpha radiation, on several sides. Rutherford expected that the high-energy alpha particles would travel right through the gold foil, perhaps only deviating slightly in their pathways. These particles would be like bullets traveling through the fluffy dough of a loaf of bread and maybe the occasional raisin. But much to his surprise, that little slip of gold foil occasionally, but completely, deflected a high-energy alpha particle, sending it back the way it came. Not all of the particles bounced back, only about 1 in 20,000, but even that was a surprise. This result shocked Rutherford. He said it was like firing a cannonball at a sheet of tissue paper and watching the cannonball bounce back off it 
and hit you. Rutherford and his students investigated and re-ran the experiment, but the results couldn't be denied. Something was deflecting those high-energy alpha particles. Rutherford could draw only one conclusion. The positive charge of the atom must be located in a small, dense, positively charged nucleus, and that the electrons orbiting the nucleus the way the planets orbited the sun. That was the only way that the alpha particles could be deflected. But if that was true, then the electrons must be moving, otherwise they would be attracted by the positive nucleus and fall into it. But even if those electrons were moving, the elegant equations of Maxwell predicted that the electrons would radiate their energy away in a mere fraction of a second. Calculations showed that atoms shouldn't exist for more than a moment, yet by all observations, most atoms seem to be eternal, completely stable for an indefinite length of time. It was a paradox that would haunt Rutherford for years. However, it would not be him who discovered the answer to this paradox, but rather a young scientist named Niels Bohr. As he aged, Rutherford became no less successful as a scientist, but he certainly became more eccentric. Many accounts recall how he would march between his many experiments, singing off-key stanzas of onward Christian soldiers, merrily dictating his students along with their projects. Despite his eccentricity, he had not lost his kindness, and his knack for inspiring profound connections with those he mentored who deeply loved him and regarded him as a father figure. There's one title Rutherford can claim that nobody else can. Not only did he win the Nobel Prize for his discovery of the atomic nucleus, but he has mentored more Nobel Prize-winning scientists than anyone ever has. But even if Rutherford bore the mantle of being a father figure to future scientists of note, Bohr held that mantle even more famously than perhaps Rutherford. Niels Bohr, or Niels Bohr, was from the country of Denmark. He was tall and athletic and an accomplished football player, or soccer, as Americans would call it. Rutherford would remember the first time Bohr filled the doorframe of his office and expressed interest in Rutherford's planetary model. Bohr would eventually come to Rutherford with a new idea to resolve the paradox of the electrons as they orbited the nucleus. Bohr's idea for the atom was based on the new quantum theory. At the very beginning of the 1900s, scientists such as Max Planck, Albert Einstein, and Louis de Broglie had made three foundational contributions to quantum theory. They observed that energy within physical systems had discrete levels, that light traveled in packets of energy called photons, and that even waves could have a momentum, meaning that when light hit a surface, it imparted a little bit of oomph to that surface. Einstein's story is perhaps the most interesting. He had recently finished a degree in mathematics and physics from a university in Zurich, Switzerland, where he had also obtained a teaching credential, he set to work finding a satisfactory teaching job. Because he had always chafed against authority, Einstein was thwarted again and again by his former mentoring professor, who kept writing him bad recommendation letters. After searching for two years, the only job he could find was at a patent office in the city of Bern, Switzerland. So Einstein found himself in this office, in a job he wasn't meant for, and was being actively prevented from pursuing what he felt was his true calling. So he looked around at his situation and decided 
that unless he wanted to spend the rest of his life working at this patent office, then he would need to seize control of his own destiny. So he went to work at what he did best, math and physics. He worked hard, and finally, in the year 1905, all his hard work paid off. Nineteen oh five is referred to as Einstein's annuus mirabilis, his quote miraculous year, when he published four groundbreaking papers, any one of which would have made him famous. The first paper concerned Planck's new quantum theory, in which Einstein presented the theory of light particles, or photons. This one earned Einstein the Nobel Prize in the year nineteen twenty two. In his second paper, Einstein expanded on a theory of Brownian motion, which closed the case once and for all for the existence of atoms. In the third paper, Einstein laid out the theory of special relativity, which showed the inadequacy of Newtonian mechanics, a theory that had been dominant and unchallenged for hundreds of years. The last paper of that miraculous year was about mass-energy equivalence, and where Einstein wrote out the world's most famous equation, E equals mc squared. was the first paper of this series, the one about photons, which enabled de Broglie to formulate the momentum of quantum waves, and in turn enabled Bohr to formulate his quantum theory of the atom. In this new model of the atom, Bohr imagined electrons around the atom not as planets around the sun like Rutherford had, but more like waves on the strings of a guitar. But these waves weren't stretched out in a straight line like a guitar string, but their ends wrapped around in a circle and reattached to one another. This explained why the electrons didn't fall back into the nucleus. They were more like a wave than orbiting bodies. And in the same way that a guitar string can only play certain tones, and other tones are forbidden, so would the electron falling into the nucleus be forbidden. This new discovery by Bohr rocked the scientific world. Einstein himself described the theory as a miracle, the highest form of musicality in the sphere of thought. Scientists who study quantum mechanics agree that Bohr's theory is, hands down, by any metric, the most important result in all of quantum mechanics, and formed the basis for our understanding of the atom. The Bohr model of the atom needed refinements, however, since it only applied with any great success to the hydrogen atom. The quantum mechanics of heavier atoms and molecules needed advancements in the theory that were eventually provided by Erwin Schrödinger in 1926, and again by Paul Dirac in 1928. By this time, Niels Bohr had become a giant in the scientific community and had become the director of a Danish institute for theoretical physics. The scientific community had split over the proper interpretation of the disturbing results of quantum mechanics. Einstein, who had done so much foundational work in quantum theory, had become deeply disturbed by the implications on reality that had emerged from the theory. In particular, quantum mechanics seemed to suggest that the old classical concept of determinism was no longer tenable, that an element of randomness existed in the way that the universe worked, and even more disturbingly, this randomness seemed to be caused by the mere act of observation. Now, scientists had always assumed up to that century that the mere act of observation wouldn't change the physical outcome of an experiment. For instance, if a planet was moving through space, physicists agreed that the planet would move along the same path regardless of whether you looked at it through a telescope or chose not to look at it at all. 
But this new quantum theory was different, and experiments showed that very small objects, like electrons and atoms, would actually change their behavior in strange and random ways if a scientist observed them. But bizarrely would behave differently if no observation was made. So the question arose, were these particles changing their behavior based on the act of observation, somehow knowing that a scientist had chosen to observe them? Or were they predestined to behave the way they did? Were they determined from the outset in the way they would choose to act? It was Einstein's firm belief that the universe obeyed beautiful, orderly laws, and that these laws had no element of randomness whatsoever, that the universe was like a finely tuned clock, and that the actions of everything within, including people, were perfectly determined, both past and future, by inalterable equations. This was an issue of almost theological importance to Einstein, which for him addressed the very nature not only of observable reality, but the very nature of God. Or advocated another interpretation. He believed, based on the results of careful experiments, that the act of observation changed the outcome of the experiment, that by measuring, say, the energy of an electron, that observation would affect the outcome and would be essentially random, though some outcomes were more likely than others. This interpretation disturbed Einstein, who even went so far as to call such a perspective spooky. Schrodinger was a scientist that held the same perspective as Einstein. Schrodinger eventually formulated his famous equation, which is used to this day to describe many aspects of atomic physics. Ironically, he originally formulated this equation in an attempt to rescue classical mechanics by using a wave equation, which is well understood in classical mechanics to describe the motion of the electrons. The story goes that he presented his equation to Bohr, who considered the equation to be a brilliant and important contribution to quantum theory, but not a challenge to his interpretation. When visiting Bohr, Schrodinger fell sick with a cold and had decided to recover in bed for a couple of days. Bohr, too intent on this question to let his poor sick colleague rest, sat by Schrodinger's bedside day after day for hours, arguing point after point with poor Schrodinger to convince him of the validity of Bohr's interpretation. Schrodinger raised all the points he could muster, but even he had to admit in the end that his formulation was not complete. This debate between Bohr and Einstein raged for years. During the famous Solvay conference in the year 1927, Bohr and Einstein sat side by side for hours each day, arguing the issue in all of its details. Einstein, the master of the thought experiment, would present a complicated situation, a confluence of hypotheticals whose physical ramifications challenged the random aspect of Bohr's perspective. Then Bohr would think of a resolution to the objection and offer a counter-argument. Then Einstein's eyes would widen, and he would return to his room that night to emerge the next morning with an even more difficult and complicated thought experiment. As the debates went on and on, in a repeated outburst that betrayed his concern for the theological implication of Bohr's interpretation, Einstein uttered the famous phrase, God does not play dice with the universe. Although it is not as well known, Bohr gave an answer to Einstein's assertion. Bohr retorted, we should not prescribe to God how he should run the universe. It would not be until 1964, when John Bell produced the famous Bell's Inequality and proposed an experiment that was immediately performed, that this long-standing issue of metaphysical significance would finally be settled. And though neither Einstein nor Bohr would be alive to hear it, the results of the experiment in 1964 
confirmed undeniably that Bohr's interpretation and not Einstein's was the correct one. Let's return from this rabbit trail of interesting scientific history to Rutherford and his scientists, who had spent the intervening years teasing out more hints about the atom, and especially its nucleus. Several mysteries still remained. For instance, why did these positive protons all stick together in the nucleus, and why did the charges of heavier atoms not increase in proportion to their masses? For instance, why does helium have twice the charge of hydrogen, but four times the mass? Many of the answers emerged with the discovery of the neutron by one of Rutherford's assistant scientists, James Chadwick. Chadwick was considered by his colleagues to be an outstanding experimentalist. Consistent, thorough, and undeniably persistent, his discovery of the neutron promised a new and powerful tool with which to probe the interior of the nucleus because of its neutral charge. Of course, as we heard before, the discovery of the neutron also awakened the imagination of Leo Zillard on that London crosswalk to the possibility of a nuclear chain reaction, a dream, or by some opinions, a nightmare that would eventually become reality. Next time on The Atomic Bomb, the world mobilizes for conflict and soon descends into World War I. For the first time, modern knowledge of chemistry, which had blossomed for the previous half-century, is leveraged for use in warfare. Munitions, explosives, and poison gas would change the nature of war forever and change the pathway of history. Thanks for listening. The Atomic Bomb Podcast was written, presented, and edited by me, Blaine Vitopka. Special thanks for edits by Gary Vitopka. Original logo and banner by Inova Enterprise. Additional credits and licensing information can be found in the description. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider engaging in further discussion or making a donation at my thinkspot.com page. Username Elvatopka, spelled L-V-O-T-A-P-K-A. You can also donate or subscribe at buymeacoffee.com slash L-V-O-T-A-P-K-A. Copyright, Lane Vitopka, 2021.